Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey y'all, it's Jason here. Just wanted to give you a quick warning that today's bonus episode does contain references to PTSD symptoms and substance abuse, and it may not be suitable for all listeners, and I just thought it was fair to give everybody a warning. All right, let's get into the episode. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% of us who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. Today's episode is a little bit different, uh, and we're excited about it. So for a little while, Ravi and I and the team at Wonder have been talking about the possibility of doing a few bonus episodes where we talk to people who we think are just really interesting folks who can give us insight on the mission of this podcast, which is helping you talk to people in your life who might be more conservative, who you want to bring around. And we just have this sort of stable of people that we've been wanting to talk to, but it doesn't really fit the the podcast's usual format of going through the news of the week. Uh, And so we're going to try that right here. And we're starting uh, with Chris Taylor. And I'm going to bring Chris in in a minute, but first uh, I want to introduce you to him a bit. I'll just tell you how I came to know of him. Uh, I had seen him come across my feed earlier this year a couple of times. I saw a combat veteran who was running for Congress. I could see that his point of view was coming from, you know, kind of the right side of the Republican Party, that he was in a primary. And I remember it standing out to me because his personal story and mine uh, had something in common, which is he had recovered from post-traumatic stress. And in his case, he also had recovered uh, from substance abuse. And he was, uh, I think, six years sober. And I remember being intrigued by that, but not really digging much deeper. And then a few months later, I remember seeing the news uh, that he had relapsed, that he had overdosed, that he was getting out of the race. And without knowing anything more, I just, in order to be supportive, I I think I tweeted something about the idea that there's no political affiliation on dog tags. And I just, I wanted to be supportive and I didn't think much of it. And then sometime later, I got this email, which I'll share with y'all. This email, it's from Chris and it says, I'm the veteran who overdosed while running for Congress in Arizona. I wanted to reach out and one, thank you again for your support during that difficult time. Two, I'd love to come on your amazing podcast and join the conversation. I'm ready to tell my story about how compromising my conscience and values to appease and court Republican primary voters, and he has in parentheses, Trump cultists, nearly killed me. I've always been a middle-of-the-road guy, a moderate John McCain, Mitt Romney, Jeff Flake kind of Republican. I have never supported Trump one ounce. I was running for Congress to fight for the soul of my party. So because my motives were pure, I felt like it would be okay to equivocate on some things and infiltrate the cult and remind those people what real leadership looks like. Obviously, it didn't work out. What I heard, saw, and experienced on a daily basis on the campaign trail was so appalling and stressful that it really contributed to my relapse and recurrence of my combat PTSD. 
After this experience, I'm in a better place mentally and emotionally than I've ever been. I've left the Republican Party for good. I'm actually thinking about becoming a Democrat. Anyway, I'd love to join you and be a guest to talk about all this. Great podcast, brother. Thanks for your example. Obviously, this struck me, meant a lot to me. Uh, and Ravi and I have been excited to, to have this conversation. So, Chris, man, thanks for your courage and for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, you know, I remember emailing you. I don't remember exactly what I said, but, uh, you know, I, I feel that even more now today than I did a couple months ago when I said that to you. Chris, I would love to hear just before we go on just a little bit about your service. Uh, so before you ran for office, where and when did you serve and, and, and why did you jump in? I served in the U.S. Army Special Operations Community as a psychological warfare specialist, and uh, I, re I deployed to Afghanistan twice during the height of that war, 2009 and 2010. Uh, my job was uh, I had a small team attached to a, an ODA, a Green Beret team. Um, we were you know, conducting unconventional warfare, uh, psychological warfare to influence the, you know, the population there. Um, to, to support the democratically elected government of Afghanistan. And, you know, I, I saw a lot of uh, combat, had a lot of close calls, a lot of friends that uh, were killed. And when I came home and I decided not to re-enlist because I was going to have to go right back for a third tour, everything kind of slowed down. And I was, all of those experiences kind of rushed back to me. And I hadn't processed them before uh, because I was, I was in a situation where I couldn't process them. And then I had an injury from a, a combat injury, a back injury. And, you know, I was prescribed opioid medication and I quickly self-medicated my post-traumatic stress symptoms with that. And then I got out and went to, uh, got some help from the VA after, after kind of a struggle. I was put on the secret waiting list at the Phoenix VA. That was a big scandal that, that came out in, in 2014. It took nine months before I could even see a mental health provider at the VA. But when I finally did get that help, um, you know, I decided, you know, I changed my life. I met my wife and we started a family and started a, a career of uh, service to my community as a firefighter, a city council member, um, had a nonprofit that was helping other veterans and other people suffering from addiction. And then, you know, I was approached by people in the Republican Party to run for the congressional seat. And so I, I just, uh, I really wanted to restore uh, the soul of the party, but also to stop the hyper-partisanship that we see that's just destroying everything. Um, and, and that's what I did. And then obviously, you know, we could talk about what happened after that. But so you were, you were PSYOPs and I didn't know that until just now. I knew yep. you were special ops. I didn't know you were the PSYOP uh, component of it. Uh, for folks listening, that is really fascinating and really dangerous work. I spent some time working with the PSYOP team in Afghanistan. I was out of Kabul. I, I went with them to Jalalabad. And I can remember those guys just having, to, to give people an example, like those guys had a rule where they were one of the few elements along with some of us in the intel world, but really, really especially them who were allowed to quote unquote self-protect, which uh, for those listening, it's important to understand that meant like, hey, go wherever you want. We've trained you up to the point where you and your small team go wherever you want in your street clothes, going by first names only, and uh, and you can self-protect. You don't need anybody else there to watch out for you. Um, I was not doctrinally told that. It kind of 
sort of happened for me anyway in my tour. But like PSYOP is basically so hua that they're like, these guys self-protect. And that's just for context, that's what Chris did. Yeah, well, maybe one other question and, and, and share as much as you want is just how did you hurt yourself out there? So my uh, my personal interpreter, uh, an Afghan national, was uh, shot right in front of me in a firefight. And I, I uh, started to treat his wound and I had to move him to safety and uh, we had already I had already been exhausted that day and I picked him up and and moved a couple meters and and I you know he was so all of his gear so heavy I fell and ruptured a, a disc in my in my back and uh, it was excruciating pain that I had to deal with um, and then when I came home um, you know there was some damage in the, the army prescribed me that opioid pain medication. And how quickly did you know that you that you needed to seek mental health support uh, when you got back to the United States? It was pretty quickly. Um, when I got home to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, you know, there was, everything was just different. I was, I was angry when I never was angry before. I was having nightmares. Um, I was starting to just, just go downhill a little bit. And, and my my superiors who had my back said, Hey, you know, need to get some help. And so I was, I was uh, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, uh, at Fort Bragg when I was still on active duty. And that kind of, you know, my dad was a Vietnam veteran and he dealt with a little bit of a hard transition when he came home. And so he came and picked me up at Fort Bragg after I was honorably discharged and we drove home to Arizona. It was really, we got, we drove home in 24 hours. We didn't stop. And that next Monday, I was at the Phoenix VA trying to get an appointment. Were you on a medical discharge? Um, yeah. So I was, uh, have a 80 Like a medically retired? Yeah. 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 So, so the reason I ask is that's a pretty abrupt end of your career, which is almost like another trauma in and of itself. It was, you know, being a part of uh, the team and being a, you know, just as a young guy, having such a amazing a, a responsibility on you. And, um, you know, it wasn't all bad. Of course, there was lots of bad parts about it. But just when I came home, realizing that, you know, I, I'll, I'll never have do something as cool as I was involved in and the camaraderie and everything, which is why I, you know, became a firefighter and stuff like that. But you never you never get that adrenaline and that, uh, that space where you're, where you're, it's life and death and you're operating at such a high level. It's just, uh, that's a big part that I think people don't realize. It's not all just post-traumatic stress. It's, it's, uh, transitioning to, you know, what you're going to do. And after having all that responsibility and coming home and, and basically being homeless and jobless, because how do you tell an employer, how do you translate your skills in a way that they understand, you know, it's, it's really difficult it's hard for people who have never done it to understand that the difference between like i think people think well you go from soldier to veteran and that's not really how it works you because it's not a job it's who you are you look in the mirror and you're a soldier right and and everything you do everything you think about you're a soldier like for me you know i was a reservist so technically i was a part-time soldier but to me like i was a soldier who also did some legal work and some political work like that's what i was and then when i had my last real weekend like it was a long time before I even thought of myself as a veteran. Um, and so it's a, it's a really, that's why I asked. I mean, that is a, that in and of itself is an abrupt transition to make in, in your personal identity. And I figured that is why you became a firefighter and it's why you wanted to 
go into public service. And do you mind if we just like if you just mind filling in that little detail, which is you're a firefighter and you're getting approached and talking to people in the GOP. I'd love to hear more just about what you believed at the time, both like what were your views, political views, and what you thought campaigning would be like before we get to maybe when you're on the trail, for example. Yeah. So, you know, in 2016, I was elected uh, as a city council member of a, a small community that I've grown up in. You know, I had had some uh, media stories about, you know, my struggles with addiction and stuff because that was big, a big part of my what I was. I didn't hide anything. And I think that was kind of the appeal. It was uh, people people saw me as uh, inspiration, I guess. And so I was approached uh, by some people in the Republican Party that, um, you know, had been involved in congressional campaigns in that district. The first district of Arizona is a is a crazy district that's one of the largest uh, land wise in the whole United States and one of the most diverse. And President Trump won it by one percent, uh, but the the Congress seat is a, is held by a Democrat, and so you know they felt that it was a seat that they could pick up. I I had lots of apprehensions about it, just the way that the Republican Party was shifting. And, you know, I was a very moderate Republican. And because of my history with criminal justice and, um, you know, things like that, I was in direct opposition to most of a lot of the things the Republican Party stand for. But with standard bearers like Mitt Romney and George H.W. Bush and, and in Arizona, Jeff Flake and, and John McCain, that's who I wanted to be like. And that's who I modeled my public service after. And when so when I jumped in, I knew that I was going to have to stay quiet about some things. And I knew that um, I would have to equivocate. I never did anything really. Uh, but people would say, because of your history in the military, you remind us of a young John McCain. And because of your religion, you remind us of a young Jeff Flake. Are you going to be a traitor to your country like them? And I mean, and this is like people on the trail, like yeah. uh, regular voters, regular voters. Um, yeah. What would you say? So that was the, the, the hardest part for me because, uh, you know, people believe what, what president Trump says about John McCain and that, you know, the conspiracy theories about him, uh, being a traitor in Vietnam. And these people have no idea what, what he went through and what, uh, he sacrificed and the kind of man that he was. And every part of me wanted to say, yes, I'm going to be exactly like John McCain and Jeff Flake. I'm going to be an independent thinker. I'm not going to blindly follow anybody, but, I knew I couldn't say that. And so I would say things like, you know, well, there, you know, anyone who spends a lot of time in Washington can, can get jaded. And, you know, I think they, I just said things like that, which I didn't believe, but I had to walk that line and, and little by little doing things like that really compromised my conscience and what I stood for. And, and it became more vile and more, you know, racist stuff and more, you know, just the, just the things we see. I mean, it's, it was hard for me to stay quiet, but I knew I couldn't win a Republican primary um, by by speaking my mind, basically. And what are some of those vile? Like you talk about how it got even more vile. What are some of the things for listeners who aren't completely familiar with what it's like on the campaign trail uh, for a Republican in Arizona? 
What are some or, things that were Or a pretty, Democrat in Missouri sometimes. Or a Democrat in Missouri. I bet, I bet yeah, both of you, of by the way. Stuff. Yeah, so both <laughs> of you actually. Um, what are some things that are common? Like, I, I think less important is probably the one off thing that you see, but what are some things that you saw continually that uh, started to wear you down? Well, you know, being in, an Ari- in Arizona and, and, you know, less than 80 miles from the border, you know, of course, we, we deal with a lot of uh, immigrate, illegal immigration and, and stuff like that. And, I, I underestimated, I guess, uh, the the underlying racism that exists um, amongst the base of the Republican Party. I, I think that for a long time, we, we kind of kept that at bay. We kind of, um, it was on the fringe, but it, it was, I saw it every day and, and it was not, uh, it was very hard to deal with. When that happens, because I've been there. It just takes your breath away when somebody does it right to your face. Like I, I can remember, I mean, it happened many times for me. Usually for me, the context was so I'd be in a rural part of Missouri shaking hands in a diner or something, and I, I'd identify myself, and they'd ask what party. I'd say I'm a Democrat, and then somebody would just say something just horribly racist about President Obama. or So that was one way, and that would always take my breath away, and then I would just like, you know, in my case, I'd reply to him, say I didn't agree, but move on. But then sometimes there was a middle ground that I didn't know what to do with all the time, which was somebody would say like, well, I am I used to be a Democrat, but I'm not anymore. I can't support this president. And I'd say, well, how come? And and then this was always the key phrase. They'd say personal reasons. And I always thought, because personally, you're racist as hell, right? <laughs> I mean, um, but but it just it just takes your breath away. Like, you're just like, holy crap. I can't believe that just happened. Which, by the way, like I will say, like, as a white guy, like, it also has given me an insight into that happened to me so rarely that I, it just made me realize like people who aren't white are walking around just having that sort of interaction a lot more often. And yeah, and it's jarring. But anyway, I was going to ask if, uh, is Prescott, I think Prescott used to be part of that district, but it's not anymore. Is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, not anymore. They, they drew it kind of weird, but that's, I believe Congressman Gosar's uh, district. Yeah. Well, quick story on Prescott. I was out there two years ago with uh, a bunch of members of my team and I was with a staff member of mine uh, who's Dominican uh, and for folks who are just listening and, and don't know about my background I'm I'm brown uh, I think I could be mistaken as, as a lot of different types of ethnicities and, and because I was in Prescott and because I was with one of my staff members who is Dominican I think people there not a not a very diverse town but people there thought I was probably Mexican uh, and I don't think I've ever been treated quite like that before. I was surprised. Uh, I didn't have a lot of experience in Arizona. And we were at a, a bar one night. It was just me and Chris was his name, uh, my, our staff member. And uh, we were the only brown people in the whole bar. There was a band playing. And uh, they uh, had Confederate flag, like belt buckles and things like that. Uh, and then uh, at one point, they stopped playing music, looked at us, pointed at us, and said, this one goes out to Sheriff Joe and everybody just looked at us and applauded. Oh uh, shit. Yeah. That was Prescott. <laughs> so that gives people a pretty good idea of, uh, kind of the electorate that Chris was dealing with in the Republican primary there, I think. And so at what point walk us through, how long are you on the campaign trail before you actually start pondering, taking some kind of action here? Uh, or did you even consciously decide to take action? Chris is the answer. To the, I mean, it's, it was sort of effectuated by, the overdose, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I 
I was on the campaign trail uh, for over eight months, um, and you know, I was I was uh, by every measure the the front runner in that primary, and you know, my campaign staff started to be get expanded, and the the pressure to to keep paying them and and you know having to sell myself and to raise the money and everything and um you know the district i mentioned was so large that i was i was away from my young family uh way more than i thought i was going to have to be and uh you know the the pressure and everything really was hard but what happened really for me was you know i i had got complacent about my recovery and and my uh what what the bedrock of my successes and in, in with PTSD and with uh, addiction and you know the things I was trying to accomplish were really good but I lost focus and I thought because my life was so different from when I was suffering from addiction and stuff like that that I thought that I had beat it completely and it's human nature to think that you know you you triumph over something and and it's over but so it really blindsided me and it was a kind of a perfect storm of things but i had a very weak moment and i relapsed and then you know the the well before before you talk about what happened next i'm curious just as a fellow combat vet with ptsd I, i'm guessing that prior to your relapse i'm guessing you started to have a recurrence of symptoms of post traumatic stress like yeah. hypervigilance nightmares right yeah. and i told what i what i completely relate to here is that feeling of forgetting that it is a perishable thing that that it's work and there's maintenance you got to do right it's you know i always compare post-traumatic stress to like a physical injury and that like if you had a really bad knee injury that you've recovered from and then one day you just decided i'm gonna run i'm gonna run as far as i want and i'm not gonna ice my knee afterwards and i'm gonna pretend this never happened well obviously you would re-injure yourself and and so i'm guessing that's what happened right it's like and, and if you talk about if you don't mind some of the symptoms that started to come back that obviously caused you to turn to self-medication. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you're right on the head. I mean, I, I, I know that you understand exactly what I was going through. It is a maintenance thing and that's a great analogy. Uh, and it's like I was running a, a major marathon uh, without icing my knee, you know, and, it, or, and it, or drinking water. Yeah. And mm. yeah, staying hydrated. And so, I started to, I think the depression uh, hit me really hard. The anxiety of, of, you know, the expectations that I had placed on myself and that my community had on me and everything. And then just the pressures and, and also it was a major part, you know, I, I hate to compromise my conscience at, at all. And I felt, and that, that weighed on me every day, it kind of grew more and more. And so I, I started to um, isolate myself I started to um, try to stay away, and that's almost impossible as a congressional candidate with this, with the staff and everything. They would always, they would be like, "What's going on? What? Why are you? You know?" And I was just like, "I just need some time." And so I would isolate. Uh, I wouldn't. I wasn't being honest about my feelings and what I was going through. And probably, probably with yourself either, right? Yeah, with myself, with my family, yeah. with my staff, with everybody. I just, I, I completely just withdrew and and tried to uh you know i did all the wrong things and so then i started to have recurring nightmares and then it was uh i couldn't sleep and and then you know it started to take a toll on me and and really what it comes down to to me 
my addiction started uh, with opioid medication for for physical pain, and I then I I realized that it masked my emotional pain, and and really what I when I relapsed without even thinking about it, this is what I've learned later in therapy is that I just wanted to numb that pain again, even though I knew that that's not the answer, and that's actually gonna be become more of the problem you know i i had a weak moment and then i was stuck in a in a situation where okay i can't tell anybody that i'm struggling like this i can't tell anybody that i've relapsed because you know everybody their careers and their paychecks and their um and not only that but my supporters um you know they they depend on me and and a lot of people that I helped through my nonprofit that I was continuing to help um, as that guiding light for their struggles. I mean, if I come out and say that I am failing or that I um, relapsed, you know, what does that mean for them? And that was probably a, too much of a burden that I placed on myself, but that contributed. And then so for a couple more weeks, I tried to hide it. And obviously, with with heroin and stuff like that, it it you know, my, you hear the term addiction is a progressive disease. And I didn't ever knew what that meant because I had been clean for six years. When I relapsed and used only a couple times, my addiction was right back to where I was six years before. And the bottom, I, I fell farther faster than, than I ever thought possible. It's like my addiction was just dormant waiting for me to mess up and it was right back. And so thankfully it came to a head that night I overdosed I say that it's hard to to say that, but now where I am now and what happened and the personal growth that I've had with my family and myself, if that wouldn't have happened, who knows what what I'd be doing now? I mean, I I definitely wouldn't be a good candidate. I probably wouldn't have won, and I you know whatever. But I'm I'm glad it happened because when it happened and when it went so public, um, I knew that there was such a relief that I could just say this is what happened and there's no more hiding it and i'm gonna i'm gonna get the help that i need and i'm gonna come back even stronger yeah man there's there's so much shame that just is inherent to post-traumatic stress and, and to trauma right it's just there's so much shame already that isn't it's not real there's no it's not earned but it's there right mm -hmm. and then when you put any sort of holding things back from the world on top of that uh when you remove that that does feel good and and yeah, I mean, I totally get like that you're glad the way it came out because maybe you would have won and then maybe you'd have spent all your time being told, well, you can't get a primary. You can't get, you've got to continue this. You're, you're our, you're our new guy. You've got to keep this up and um, it would not have ended well. And so I'm glad you made, I'm glad, I mean, well, let me ask, were there people even after that who were encouraging you or w was there any discussion of like, Hey, well, why don't we just not talk about this or, you know, like, let's just keep going. I imagine there were. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I live in a small town and I have close relationships with the, the media here. I definitely could have buried that and, uh, you know, secretly and quietly got some help and then got back on the campaign trail. Uh, but I knew that that's not the way I wanted to handle it. Um, anything that's hidden you know, you can't heal. And, and so, um, I actually put out a press release before anybody knew. And I just said, look, this is what happened. 
and I'm not going to let this shame stand in the way of me um, overcoming this and, and taking responsibility and everything else. And, and that surprisingly is what became the story. Um, all of the producers and stuff from CNN and New York times and all over, you know, I expected it to be like, Oh, this Trump supporting congressional candidate is a heroin addict and all this, but that's not what it was at all. And, and it was so overwhelming. The, the positive comments and stuff. I had my personal cell phone on my on my website. And after that story broke that day, I got hundreds of voicemails and calls and, and comments and 99% of them were positive. And, and it was amazing. And, and that gave me such hope. Um, and, and the one reason why I realized that, you know, the Republican Party is just, I can't be a part of it is at least 80 to 90% of those uh, voicemails would be prefaced with, hey, you know, I can't agree with your politics. I'm a Democrat or I'm whatever, uh, but I care about you as a human being. And, and uh, you know, I can feel your pain and, and thank you for the way you've handled it. And that was kind of the, the last straw for me because, yeah, I did get some support from the Republican Party and people who've known me, but the overwhelming majority of people were um, independent or, or, you know, they would always say I, because, I, you know, they thought that I was a, a, a MAGA Trump supporter and that wasn't me at all, but yeah. Well, you hadn't disavowed any of that at that point. And so right, that's no. all that much more notable that they're reaching out. So before we get into sort of discussion of like politics right now and your thoughts, cause I'm eager to do that. How are you doing? What is your life like right now? And, and how are you? So, you know, I, I, uh, just celebrated eight months in recovery and congratulations. I can honestly say that, that it's more solid and more meaningful than this almost seven years I had before, you know, because I learned so much when I relapsed, I, I took the time to, to really dissect everything about me and my family has been amazing. My wife and my children, you know, with the pandemic, right when I came back from treatment is when everything got shut down. And so we kind of took that time to just reconnect as a family. And I didn't have any pressures or anything like that. And the amount of growth we've had has been amazing. And, you know, I've, I've decided to finish my degree in public relations and um, I'm still doing a lot in my community, in my small community, um, especially around addiction and overdose awareness and stuff like that. And so that keeps me busy, but but really my focus is just being a father and being a husband. If there's a, if there's something in the, in the future, as far as politics, um, you know, I don't want to close that door at all, but uh, like I said, I, I don't see any path forward in the Republican party at all. Well, and isn't it amazing what a difference it makes when you're enjoying your life in the present moment, how much less you think about what you might do in the future? Yeah, it's crazy. I get the question a lot, but it's really, you know, I've learned that I have to be present in the moment, in the day. And and it's kind of a cliche, but it's so important to just focus, you know, make make good goals and stuff to achieve. But you really have to stay focused on what's important. And that's what I'm doing. And and so whatever comes will will happen um, and it, it'll supposed to happen, you know. Yeah. Right after my announcement, Max Cleland, who's a former VA secretary, called me and we had a great conversation. And one of the things he said was, he said, and he's a, 
he, he suffered from PTS. And, and one of the things he said to me was, Jason, your job is to find one moment of fucking joy every day. Cause if you do that, you fucking win. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I think about that a lot. Yeah. Beyond the idea of whether or not ideologically you feel welcome in one party or another, I, I want to make sure anybody listening to this has a good idea of, of whether or not, and I suspect I know the answer, whether or not you feel like from a mental health perspective or from a moral injury perspective or anything like that, like you are in any way held back in your future or in any way not, not capable of trying those things. No, I mean, absolutely not. I think with uh, the right uh, routine and the right plan and, and keeping my treatment and, and the things that I need to do, my maintenance um, as priority, uh, it doesn't hold me back at all. Actually, it's made me a stronger person, a better person, a better man, uh, somebody who who understands a lot more and can and can uh, empathize with people and and relate to people. Uh, you know, I wouldn't change my experiences for anything because it's made me who I am. And so, you know, as long as I'm doing what I need to do and I'm taking care of myself and my family, number one. Um, uh, nothing is going to hold me back and nothing would hold uh, any veteran or, or otherwise a non-veteran that's dealing with PTS. Um, you know, you can live a, a healthy, happy life and, and be very productive. All right. Well, let's talk about the politics a bit. Ravi, go, go ahead. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm all into this PTS conversation. So, yeah, well, I just want to thank you both for letting me be a fly on the wall for this. Cause um, I'm learning a lot. My brother fought in Afghanistan and I'm, and he's now works in the federal corrections system and, you make me wonder whether I need to be asking him better questions about his experience. So the the question of, so you, you've talked a lot about what the sort of personal manifestations of this uh, and while you're going through, you know, struggling with the addiction and the PTS, you were also going through an experience, uh, an ideological experience. So you were grappling with the fact that you believed things that were, your, your actions and your beliefs weren't lining up. Uh, and so after you leave this campaign, uh, at what point do you do anything public uh, about your views and, and how were they received? So, you know, after I came home from treatment and, and got some on some solid ground, I started a podcast um, that, you know, is not not major, not major or anything, but for my little... I mean, it could be. Tell everybody about it. Maybe, yeah, maybe we can it. make it more yeah, major. It's, uh, it's called uh, Come This Far with Chris Taylor, and it's uh, it's kind of a shortened version of I didn't come this far to only come this far. That's kind of a mantra that um, I've taken on with my family. And so, you know, the podcast is, is kind of picked up here locally in Arizona and with people who've known me my whole life and stuff. And, you know, I, I tried to keep it not political because it's really about... Um, you know, human struggle and, and overcoming and redemption and, and highlighting stories like that. But, you know, the, the political, uh, part of me is just a big part of who I am. So obviously with everything going on, I have to have an avenue of, to get out my thoughts and, and my, uh, you know, everything that I'm going through. And, and so a couple about, uh, well, it was a couple months ago, I guess now I came out, you know, the whole thing with the pandemic, I mean, let's, let's get real. You know, th this is, uh, it's just unbelievable. I, I, I shake my head so many times every day with just the, 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 ma the whole mask thing and, and the, the disinformation that is spread from, from the president of the United States. And, you know, so I finally just said, I can't do this. Uh, so I made a whole podcast about um, how horrible it is and how Joe Biden is, uh, uh, I don't agree with him on, on everything, but he's a decent 
honorable human being that that his biggest strength is empathy and and being able to relate to people and he really wants to unite the country and so i came out and said i'm voting for joe biden and i'm a lifelong republican um and it, it's funny because i think that most people supported me still after i overdosed on heroin um and i felt that support but when i came out against president trump and endorsed joe biden that's when they jumped off the the chris taylor train i guess you know and um <laughs> it was crazy i i got I, I got a lot of uh backlash because in in my county in arizona it's the most rural county one of the smallest counties um i think president trump won by like 80 percent or something in 2016 here and so there's a lot of people who um you know they're they're they eat that russian disinformation up like uh faster than than president trump eats big macs you know it's crazy <laughs> and so i i took a lot of uh flack but you know i felt so good about it and and there's a lot of people who've private messaged me and saying again thank you for that um you know courage to do that and we feel the same way we can't say it but we're gonna vote for joe biden so have you had conversations with other folks who are sort of in your mold uh, you know the people who were you know attracted to people like mccain and romney and you know more down the down the middle moderate voters like i imagine you've had some of those conversations over yeah, the last few months absolutely i mean the the you know i'm part of a group mccain alum for uh biden I'm I'm a part of the LDS church. There's a huge LDS uh, for Biden. You know, there's a lot of people who are feeling the way I feel. And, um, you know, just the way that the president attacked uh, John McCain and J Jeff Flake turned off a lot of people. I mean, that right there was was a big deal here in Arizona. But, you know, with the way that he's handled this pandemic and the way that, uh, you know, I, I don't even know. I, there's so many things that I just people talk to me about like the Russian bounty thing um, with soldiers in Afghanistan. I mean, that shook me to my core, you know, to, to, to understand that, you know, I was in Afghanistan and if Vladimir Putin was putting a bounty on my head and my commander in chief was, didn't have my back. I mean, I can't even imagine that. And, and uh, president Obama was my commander in chief the whole time that I was in the service. And, uh, you know, I didn't agree with everything he did, but I respected him so much as, as the commander in chief. And that was one thing still today, people are so obsessed with Clinton, Obama. I mean, everything I say about president Trump, they, their whole, their only comeback is, well, what about president Obama? And, or they don't even say president Obama, you know, what are they, what about, what about Obama? Oh, bummer. And it's like, man, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, the what about sort of line is like it's a tough one, and we probably need to deal with this more on Majority Fifty Four because it is the most common rejoinder. And so, uh, you know, we don't have enough time today to talk through it more. But it, you just made a mental note for us to 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 spend some time on the what aboutism. I do want to underline something you said, which is that the LDS community is is moving more towards Biden than uh, they typically have for Democrats in the past. And I've been reading a lot about. You know, this is not going to make the difference in Utah, right, because of the numbers. But you see with Flake, uh, Senator Flake, with uh, Senator Romney now saying he didn't vote for for President Trump. And uh, we there have been some aggregate reporting. But I would love to hear a little bit more just from your personal perspective about 
what that fault line is for people who are not very familiar with LDS and, and Arizona in particular, because I don't think people know how big that community is in Arizona and how important it is politically. Yeah, I mean, Arizona by no means is, uh, you know, on par with Utah, but but the second, I think, second highest number of, of uh, LDS members are in Arizona. And LDS women in particular uh, have broken for Biden uh, in astronomical numbers. And I think it's going to make the difference in Arizona. For I really do, because, um, you know, Biden's up by, I think, last time I checked, 3% or something in Arizona. And, and that that uh constituency is going to break overwhelmingly for for biden that you know that lds women uh suburban women and and you know it's it's crazy because you know when romney was the nominee obviously he had amazing support in the community but uh in 2016 trump out of all of religious groups out of all of christian groups uh the lds voted for him at a much less uh pace than any other republican uh, nominee, and it's even more so now. Everything that he stands for, and everything that he is, and says, and does, is in direct uh, opposition to what our church teaches. And you know, the the leadership of the church, they do not get involved in um, you know candidates and and supporting candidates. But it's plain to see, you know, with the with the immigration, his Im- stances on illegal immigration, the Muslim ban, you know. For the first time in history, the church has come out with direct statements in opposition to his policies and his rhetoric. And so, uh, as as a member of the church, I can't I can't see how anybody would support him and still say that they support the you know the church. And so, it's going to be a, a big numbers here in Arizona. It's going to count a lot, and I think it's going to carry the state for for the Biden campaign. Well, the other thing I think about it is. I've got some I've got some close friends uh, who are LDS and who have done missions and that kind of thing and 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 one of the things I've talked to them about is that you know in the same way that so many veterans are offended by his by Trump's uh, inability to grasp caring about something larger than yourself uh, you know a community that such a big rite of passage is is about going somewhere else in the world and serving something greater than yourself I can see where people would look at him and say we're not the same yeah. I mean, he uh, he can't see anything other than a, a personal transaction, um, which is why he stood at the grave of uh, General Kelly's son and said, I don't I don't get it. What was in it for him? I mean, he doesn't get it. And and yeah, you're right. You know, I didn't serve a mission in my church, but, uh, you know, for people who have uh he he wouldn't understand that. I mean, you you can't understand foregoing your your career and your college and starting a family to go off and do missionary work as an eighteen year old uh, kid. I mean, so yeah, it's it's in direct opposition to him, and um, a lot of people have you know don't have the the platform or the courage to to come out publicly against him. But I think that um, you know what I feel, and I can only speak from my personal experience, but. It's uh, there's overwhelming support in that community for, for 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 Biden. Well, we're we're running out of time, Chris, and I would love to to ask you one final question or or kind of have you react to to a statement even, which is, it sounds to me like one of the scary parts for you about the ideological transition, especially the public nature of it, is that your community around you is so overwhelmingly supportive of Trump, and that 
so you both had a physical community that you were you had to uh, leave in some kind of way, right? Or at least alienate yourself from. And uh, there's an ideological community that you were leaving at the same time. And I, I was struck by, you know, you, you say that you were potentially, you know, you potentially want to become a Democrat. But one thing I want to say to you is, even if you didn't, um, I think one thing that you're you're underscoring for me and hopefully for our listeners is that it doesn't need to take somebody like you becoming a Democrat for us to welcome you into some kind of community where we can have better conversations and have each other's back and care about each other. You know, it, it, you don't have to come all the way that far. As a Democrat, I would love for you to do that, but I don't think you have to, you know? Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest reasons that I decided to run for Congress was to to restore, you know, the basic decency of of being able to disagree with somebody and and not question their motives or not question their character or or you know not attack them personally and and that's one of the things that I made a big uh, talking point on the trail was that you know this this uh, disgusting hyperpartisanship that we see we can't accomplish anything going the way that we're going now and 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 at the top of the the food chain the president. Um, you know, he sets that tone. And, and you know, I, I think that there's so many uh, Republican members of the Senate and the House that are secretly praying for President Trump to, to lose and go away so that they can actually get things done for their constituents. And, um, you know, you're right. I think that my the things that I am most passionate about, um, helping veterans, um, getting real meaningful criminal justice reform and, and addiction recovery um, reform. Uh, you know, those are things that the Democrat Party has has highlighted as as top priorities. And those are things that over the next, you know, part of my life, I want to play a pivotal role and fight for that. And so if I want to be involved in politics, um, I would love to be the one, you know, the first congressional independent to win a seat. Um, you know, Justin Amash didn't run as an independent when he, but, but you know what I'm saying. But I don't think that's probably possible. Um, and so, you know, I, I am open to joining the Democrats. My brother is uh, Kathy Hoffman's uh, uh, communications director in Arizona. She's the superintendent of public, uh, public education in Arizona, uh, very progressive. And so, you know, I have that outlet and those those type of friends that that have been supporting me and and so i i feel only thing any i feel only love coming from that side and inclusion and uh i don't feel that from the other side so yeah i got one last question did you ever get to meet john mccain no i never did i i got to spend some time with jeff flake but uh no i never got to meet john mccain um you know i wish i had and uh, i've got to I've got to meet some of his uh, closest advisors and stuff, uh, you know, who who were kind of helping me behind the scenes uh, on my campaign. But uh, yeah, he's a he's a big hero of mine for sure. Well, mine too, and I only ever met him once, but I think I think he would be very proud of you. Thanks, man, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Tell everybody your podcast again and tell them where they can find it. Okay, so it's Come This Far with Chris Taylor, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, pretty much any any platform uh, that you get your podcasts on. Uh, just search for Come This Far with Chris Taylor. 
And which, give them your social media handles so they can find you and tell you how much they appreciated hearing from you. So my, my Twitter is uh, at Taylor, uh, the number four, Arizona. And then Facebook, it's, it's at Taylor for Arizona, F-O-R, Arizona. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, everybody, obviously what we did here is a little bit different than a usual episode. Please feel free to uh, leave a review. Uh, for us and you can let us know whether you liked it whether you'd like it to be any different that sort of thing we really appreciate it but in the meantime remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today hi listeners it's robbie with a question for you what if instead of being on the brink of disaster we're on the cusp of a better world for that answer i recommend listening to the what could go right podcast Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.